uh, it's an honor to be invited to give this lecture and it's, it's such a pleasure to be back to see so many familiar faces. Uh, I told David earlier today that I wrote the kind of paper that I would only write to deliver at Oxford <laughs> because I have questions about where to take this paper. And I believe people at Oxford will help me think through this paper. So you get to hear this, the very first draft of it, but written to be delivered. And not with all the cracks taken over, but enough to raise questions about where to take this. Uh, so I'll start off by situating this uh, within my broader work. And how this, in a sense, became a pause in the broader work. So I've written something, and I'm still mulling over the larger significance of what I've written and how it connects to the larger work. So this is where uh, we are. I've also asked David that in exactly 40 minutes, he should let me know that I have 10 minutes left. And this is a lecture of exactly 50 minutes. So in 40 minutes, I go to the conclusion, and I'll read the last section. And uh, the PowerPoint is minimal, but it's to sort of help you go through this with me as names that aren't familiar come up. And then uh, if you want to take some notes, the names will be up. Paper starts with an epigram. Blessed are they who are imprisoned for self-government's sake, for theirs is the freedom of the land. And this is January 17, 1950, Accra Evening News, which is the newspaper of the CPP, or the Convention People's Party. In 1950, that is the year after the CPP had been founded. And already this early, we have a signal of how important Christian motives, symbols, messaging, imaging would be for the party. Okay. Now, I've had a long interest in historicizing belief. And I've wanted to be able to look at specific time periods and understand belief from the context and the sources, not to take what I know from more recent periods and upstream back to earlier periods, and try to come up with a methodology of how I'll be able to do that in ways that I find historically rigorous. One. Uh, two, I've also been interested in examining the interface between religion, spirituality, and political power. And as a Ghanaian, I'm uh, very keenly aware of how spirituality informs our very notions of power. But how to do this in ways that are conceptually rigorous, with a language that does merit or credit to these processes, has also been one of the challenges I've been involved in. <coughs> I'm working on a larger project on Akan society and the culture of power in contemporary Ghana from 1650 to recent times. I decided I'll write a cultural history of power over 300 years, and I'll see how that works. And if I can track continuities in how we, we conceptualize power. For the earlier phases, uh, I did a lot of, I'm doing a lot of research and fieldwork with shrines, indigenous shrines, priests, looking at the interface between shrines and chieftains. As I go into especially the post-colonial period, uh, there is a shift and I begin to look at people as power, but through the medium of elections, and what it means to have a following. Yeah. So it's almost as if I, I, I become more modern as I get into the 20th century, and the concepts and the tools that I use for the earlier period, though they remain pertinent, they are kind of minimized. Then I hit this bump in the road, and it caused me to pause and to rethink how I'm looking at the 20th century and how perhaps I need to strengthen that component of religion and spirituality in these understandings of power in the 20th century and not to minimize it. So, I uh, decided to write uh, a paper around Nkrumah and I've written it to be read and so I'm going to read it uh, and then when I have 10 minutes, signal me uh, and I can end anywhere and I think we'll still get the, the thrust of the paper because I'm really looking forward to the question and the answer period. Okay. There is a body of literature, so we are now at the introduction, uh, that speaks 
to Kwame Nkrumah's deployment of Christian motives, symbols, and images, and his relations with the Christian Church in Ghana from the formation of the Convention People's Party in 1949 until his overthrow in the military coup in February 1966. You have the epigram which shows or signaled the role Christianity would play. These works examine Nkrumah's experience with Christianity that led to his self-definition as, and I quote Nkrumah himself in his autobiography, a non-denominational Christian and a Marxist socialist, with no contradiction in his own perception between the two. Nkrumah had vexed relations with two institutions that he held in high regard, but also considered problematic, the Christian church and chieftaincy. Though he had received training in the Catholic seminary at Emerson near Cape Coast, considered at one time becoming a Catholic priest, pursued theological training at Lincoln University in Pennsylvania, and became a licensed preacher in the Presbyterian Church in Pennsylvania. He placed the structures of the church in Africa within the context of empire, and the church in Ghana seemed often to speak from this perspective and not from a local agenda. Just as he threatened Ghanaian chiefs who proved reactionary in the nationalist struggle, that they might be compelled to run away and leave their sandals. In the quest to forge the new nation, Nkrumah found himself competing with the church and chieftaincy, institutions that claimed to speak for the Ghanaian. Though these are important themes that will be examined in this paper, much less has been written about the place of indigenous religion in Nkrumah's life beyond rumor and anecdote. But there is evidence of this gravitation towards indigenous religion over the course of his political career, a trajectory that demands an interrogation of the place of spirituality in Nkrumah's life and his understanding of political power. Uh, I've tried to uh, put up a definition of how I'm using spirituality, and I step off Diana X, uh, 2003, a book called Encountering God, and spirituality she sees as the disciplined nurturing of inner spiritual life that all spirituality requires a journey inward without it action or combat leads quickly to better and I'm in this paper interested in spirituality and the african-american civil rights struggle spirituality and the african nationalist struggle Nkrumah's associations with two deities, Kankanyame of Guinea, and I'm sure you have heard about that, and Akunedi Atlase, which is in Equiapim in Ghana, are intriguing, including his very personal relationship with Nana Oparibia, or Equia Oparibia, who was the high priestess of Akunedi from 1957 to 1995, when she died. Anthropologists in Africa have long sought to understand the creativity of power from a cultural and religious perspective. Power is a cultural phenomenon, and Irons and Cap highlight how cultural resources are used in guiding actions, defining goals, interpreting the experience of power relationships as domination and subordination, or even expressing legitimacy. Astute observers of African politics have realized the importance of religion or spirituality in contemporary African politics, even when their treatment of belief reduced it to superstition. Chabal and Dallas usefully refer to the dual registers that drive African politics and seek to use the concept of complementary logics to explain the simultaneous relevance of tradition and modernity in contemporary African politics. But tradition and modernity are not problematized enough, so their heuristic value remained unclear in this <coughs> important study. Stephen Ellis has consistently drawn attention in recent works to the role of indigenous religion in contemporary African politics. He discussed the religious dimension to the Liberian Civil War, noting the rituals of inversion. You, know, you have men dressing like women and all that and cannibalistic rites by which fighters sought spiritual protection. 
His observations drew the anger or the resentment of Charles Taylor, who actually sued Ellis in a court in the UK. And I was actually asked to be an expert witness, which I could not because we are friends and I was on the board of the African Affairs Journal at that time. More recently, Ellis has examined the significant roles of shrines, such as the Okija Shrine in the contemporary politics of Southeast Nigeria, where the shrine acts as a fiduciary agency in attesting to agreements between wealthy godfathers and politician protégés. In a fast-changing political world, where politicians reneged on agreements with their patrons, the Okija Shrine witnessed these arrangements and brought spiritual sanctions to bear on defaulters. I seek to transcend this dichotomy between tradition and modernity, aware of how it is easy for tradition to become a residual analytical category for what does not fit into universal paradigms. Cooper and Stoller note how the 1950s witnessed a division of labor in the social sciences with a privileging of the universals of social theory. Anything that did not fit into universal models was consigned to, and I quote them, the allegedly particularistic disciplines of anthropology or history or to area studies. Very recently, Joseph Miller, in examining the different logic of accumulation in Africa within wider global strategies of accumulation, commented on the tendency for social scientists to see African economic responses as cultural and not as economic. As an historian, I have been intrigued by how historical developments, such as African slavery and racism, were embedded in the very processes of capitalism and the nation state that marked the modern era. The tension between African slavery and citizenship, for example, in new nation states, was at the center of all three 18th century revolutions in Europe and the Americas. Fred Cooper points out how modernity has been used in problematic ways in academic literature, representing an assemblage of forces, an epoch, the modern epoch, or for some, actually both. We have debated the presence of a prototype modernity, as if there can be only one modernity. And we've talked about multiple modernities in the relationship of the Western and the non-Western worlds. That we cannot escape the concept of modernity is clear, as it remains important to both academics and non-academics. Cooper advocates, and I endorse, that we approach modernity historically, sensitive to the different ways people frame the relationship of past, present, and future, an understanding of the situations and conjunctures that enable and disable particular representations and a focus on process and causation in the past and on choice, political organization, responsibility, and accountability in the future. It is in the diaspora that Kwame Nkrumah and other Africans like him, who traveled to Europe or North America in the colonial period, encountered race and the legacies of African-American slavery, as well as the sharp inequities of capitalism. I need not enter into these. I think all these are familiar. Okay. Uh, in Krumah's time in America, which is from 1935 through 1945, overlapped with the Italian annexation of Ethiopia and World War II, events that sharpened his understanding of empire. In his engagement with African-American students at Lincoln University, social work in African-American communities in Philadelphia, several odd jobs during school vacations to earn money, and meeting notable African-American activists such as Du Bois, C.L.R. James, and others. Nkrumah received an education in race matters and capitalism. In his study of history, theology, and philosophy at Lincoln and the University of Pennsylvania, he struggled to make sense of the changing world and his place in it. The identity of the boy from rural Inzima in southwest Ghana was transformed, and peers at Lincoln University, where he enrolled in 1935, commented that he always described or referred to himself as Nkrumah of Ghana, of Africa, never of the Gold Coast. So he always saw himself as a continental figure, and they found that actually amusing, so they used to tease him Nkrumah of Africa. The theologian 
Quincy Dixon, observes that Nkrumah never made public his position on religion during his leadership of Ghana between 1951 and 1966. But as I interrogate the place of religion in his life and politics in those pivotal years, I cannot evade the distinct impression that the key to understanding the significance of spirituality in Nkrumah's political life lies in his years in America and at Lincoln. Three incidents over the past four years directed my attention to Lincoln and to Nkrumah, uh, to Nkrumah and to Lincoln in my attempt to understand the place of spirituality and culture in the making of the independent Ghanaian nation state. The first in 2008 was an interview with Akonedi in Latte, so at the shrine with a follow-up interview with the priestess of Esiojebi, which is another related deity, and I'll explain these, in Abuoso near Mamponteng, so this is Asante outside of Mampo. The second, in 2011, reaffirmed Esiojebi's American connections, because when I spoke to these, this deity, he would talk about how he, he would visit America, and he had all, wives in America. And I kind of listened in amusement, and I'm like, okay, fine. Uh, but something will change my mind. So this is a paper that has caused me to go back to look for interviews that I had put away and to reread them in new ways. The third also in 2011 was a conversation with colleague and friend A.B. Asenso, uh, who as a young journalist and Nkrumahist had followed Nkrumah into exile in Guinea after his overthrow in 1966. And it dealt this conversation with Nkrumah's relations with the Ghanaian educator J.E.K. Agri, who had been the vice principal of Achimota College when it was opened in the 1920s. Okay. So, let's look at Akunedi, the African diaspora and Agri. These are the three conversations that got me thinking. I've talked about the larger book project that I am working on, and this is what took me to Akunedi. Uh, and what I did after the interview with Akunedi was that I shared the transcript uh, with a friend of mine who is a queen mother of an important Asante region or native state. Uh, and I shared it with her because she had lived at Akunedi during school vacations much of the 1960s and the 1970s because her mother and the high priestess were friends. So I said, does this interview make sense? And, and she, she read it and decided that, you know, I don't, I don't recognize any of the names of the informants. So, uh, yeah, it's important, but it looks like most of the, the generation when Oparibia was high priestess have died out. So, but there's one person who is in her late 70s, and she's just outside of Mampong. Her name is Okomfuata, and she trained under... Uh, of Arabia. So I'll take you there. And she can amplify this interview and you can decide whether what you have from Akunedi uh, is, 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 is legit or not. And I said, that sounds good. So we set up an appointment and we went on July 25th, 2008 to Abuoso outside of Mampongting to see this uh, elderly priestess, Okomfuata, who is the priestess to a Siojepi. Now, in Akunedi, there are four deities that are connected. Akunedi itself is the senior deity. And then there are three other associated deities. There is Esiojebi, and then Adadikofi. And they are like, they are like policemen, or we'll call them brafo, or directly the executioners. If you mess up, Akunedi himself, herself does not like blood. Akunedi sends these two they come and sort you out. Okay. So that's the relationship. And then there is Esi Ketua, who actually is someone who died in pregnancy and then became a spirit. And, and, and that is the one if you're trying to find out if someone, if a death is natural. It is possession by Esi Ketua that you seek and that would guide you. Uh, after being possessed, people often would go into a coma for two, three days. So I believe the colonial government, and after that, banned possession by Sikitwa because they considered it dangerous. So these are the four deities. And Okonfuata, Okonfuase, 
is both uh, uh, is the priestess to a Jebi, but can also be possessed by Akhenaten. So she's the authority I went to see. So I showed up, and uh, I had all these questions I wanted to know. So I wanted to know more about Akhenaten and Esujebi. Uh, who or what is Akhenaten? Was Esujebi, because Esu means water, is Esujebi a body of water? Was he originally Guan from Latte? Why is he now present just outside Mamponting, which is Asante? Because if you are Guan from Latte, you shouldn't be here. What is his relationship with Akhenaten? So I had all these questions. That's okay. Bring a bottle of schnapps, bring the equivalent of $100, come back on Sunday. In the interim, I'll speak to the deity. And if the deity permits, I'll speak to you. So I showed up for my Sunday appointment with my friend, the Queen Mother. Uh, we got there. The priestess of Confata was arbitrating a case, gave us a seat to sit. We sat down. After that, she went into her room. And then when she came out, something important had happened. She came out possessed wearing a batakeri or a northern smock, holding a sword, had a cap, was speaking with an affected accent like she was from the north. Everybody in the compound got up, Nanaba or Nana or chief has come. The deity had come. So I'm trying to figure out, okay, how does this work? So she goes to sit down, invites both myself and the queen mother to come. And then we sat down, and it's in a sense, this is what the deity explained, uh, that the priestess, whom he referred to as Meire Atta, my wife Atta, has explained to me the questions that you are interested in from your previous visit, about my essence, my identity, and that of my Abrewa Akunedi, my old woman Akunedi. No one can explain my essence, so I have to come myself. And that is why he had come through the priestess. And that he had come also because of respect for his relationship with the Queen Mother and the Queen Mother's family. And that was another interesting uh, conversation they had before even my interview. And that is why he had come. Uh, so he goes on and speaks for an hour. And I asked permission, can I put it on a tape record? And the DT asked me, why do you want to put it on a tape record? And I explained that I teach, and I just want to keep playing this back to myself to make sure that everything you tell me, I use it accurately. That's okay. So I have the distinct privilege of an hour recording of a DT or a tape recorder on my computer. He spoke for an hour uninterrupted, and then asked me, have I, have I answered all your questions? Indeed, he had. He also observed that it was about to rain, and as a a body of water, his taboo was rain, and so he needed to leave. He cautioned me to drive safely on my way to Accra, as it would rain all the way, and to call his wife Atta, the priestess, and to let Atta know that I had returned safely on reaching my destination. And it did rain all the way to Accra. During the interview, Asio Jebi defined his identity and that of Akunedi and the relationship between the four affiliated deities at Akunedi. He also mentioned how African Americans became connected with the Akunedi Shrine, a revelation that would gain later significance as my research continued. African Americans had come to Latte, to Akunedi, during the time of Akonfor Paribia, especially in the 1960s and the 1970s, to learn Akom or spirit possession. On graduation from their training, the African-Americans were given Akunedi's associated deities to take back to America, Esiojebi, Adade Kofi, and Esi Ketua, because Akunedi herself does not travel and does not cross the sea. Esiojebi stated that he had several wives in America, naming the cities where his wives resided, and that he visited the United States regularly. I listened in amusement and I said to myself, a deity who is a braggart. And that's the way I left it. I will skip how he defined himself and how he defined Akhenaten. But during the question time, if you want to hear in the deity's own voice, speaking in I am, I am in the first person, and then when it comes to Akhenaten, my brewer, my old woman, my old woman, I can go back and then I can define these for you. So that is my first encounter. I 
transcribed it. Fascinating interview. I fired. Then a chance encounter with an African-American priestess or comfort in Washington, D.C. in 2011 at the just-ended African Studies Association annual conference brought my mind to this first interview. So at this meeting, I met an elderly African-American woman with a name tag that said, Okomfo Ama Bwachua. So priestess Ama Bwachua. She was introduced to me by friends at Indiana University, and I tried to make sense of the American accent and the name tag. I'm like, okay, something is not right. My curiosity got the better of me, so I asked, are you a priestess? She confirmed that she was and that she had been trained at Latte, at Akonedi. I arranged to interview her, and she opened an important connecting door for me. The African-American connection started in the mid-1960s with an African-American man called Augustine Dinzulu, and I have his name up there. In the 1950s and 1960s, there was a deep spiritual search for authentic African religion among African-Americans living in New York City. At the center was Augustine Dinizulu, who later became Nana Yao or Pari Dinizulu I. Dinizulu's family came from Georgia, but they settled in New York. He had an abiding interest in things African, and at the age of 17, had started in Harlem an organization called The Africans. Dinizulu was a master drama and photographer with links to the Afro-Haitian community in New York. Then there was someone who is called Baba Osei Ajman. And I thought, Baba sounds like a Nigerian name. Osei Ajman is a Ghanaian name, but this guy's supposed to be an African-American who was also interested in Yoruba religion. Now, the common interest that brought all these people together was African drumming and dancing. And together, they created an association called Dambala Redo, which is on the board in New York, an organization with a focus on African religions. Baba Osajiman was one of the first African-Americans to be initiated into the Santeria tradition in Cuba. There was also a political dimension to this search. And Dinizulu, for example, often toured with Malcolm X, performing the musical act before Malcolm X's speeches. But some in this group were dissatisfied with the syncretistic religions of the New World and sought to embrace distinct, or in their opinion, pure African religions. So Osajiman headed to Nigeria and to find out more about Yoruba religion. Dinizulu went to Ghana in 1965. Okomfo Boachua, the African-American priestess, was informed that Dinizulu had dreams about his place of origin in Africa and hoped that someone in Africa would interpret these dreams for him. <coughs> Whether the dreams specifically mentioned Ghana, I'm still not sure. But Ghana was a haven for African-Americans under Nkrumah's government, as Kevin Gaines' work on African-Americans in Ghana has demonstrated. And this is perhaps what directed Dinizulu to Ghana. In Accra, a contact referred him to Numo Isaac Ahia, a Ghana priest whose deities included Tigari from northern Ghana. Numo will direct Dinizulu to Akuneti. And I'm struck by how there is an ecumenism among deities and how there's also a sense of hierarchy. And everyone feels that Akuneti is almost like the mother of all deities. Dinizulu's website recounts what transpired at Akuneidi, and I quote him on his website. In 1965, the late Nana Yao the I, whose research had revealed to him that his ancestors came from Ghana, traveled to the Akuneidi shrine in Ghana for an oracular consultation, which was done by the Okomfo Hema, chief priestess's mother. So Nana, a pure mother, was the one who did the divination. Nana Dilizuru was directed to his ancestral home through divination, so they found out that he was from that area. He was completely overwhelmed. He was initiated and upon his return brought to the USA, Nana Esiojebi, Nana Esiketua, Nana Adade Kofi shrines. So these deities came. Indeed, there are more shrines to Akan deities perhaps in, in, in the US now than perhaps I can find even in parts of of, of, of Asante. 
and it's an amazing development. In 1967, he established the traditional African religious and cultural organization called Bosum Jemawoji in New York. And it has still like uh, an offshoot and you can, they have websites and everything. They do training, they do spirit processions, you can go visit with them. In 1971, the late Nana Dinizulu requested, received, and established the Akunedi Shrine in the USA. Nana Dinizulu was given the titles of Omanhine, or King, and Okonforhine, or Chief Priest, of Akans in America. And he was the first to introduce Africans born in America to the deities of Ghana, West Africa. He also invited Okonforhima Nana Ikwio Parabia to visit the USA. So that's the website. I've indicated above in my interview with SUJB that the DT insisted that Akunedi does not travel and does not cross the sea. Thus, it was the associated deities at the Akunedi shrine that were given to African Americans. Akunedi's chief priestess also cannot travel. And this is a fact that I understand made Okomfor or Parabia reluctant to accept the title of chief priestess when it was offered to her in 1957 because she was a very successful cocoa farmer. And the idea of being immobile was not very appealing uh, to her. What granted Nana Oparebia physical mobility and Akunedi a new chapter in this history was her association with Kwame Nkoma. I will expand on this relationship later in this paper. Now the third incident has to do with Nkrumah and, uh, and Agri, his mentor. And this is an incident that takes place in Salisbury, North Carolina. So now I'm getting excited. Okay, I'm, I've connected two interviews. So Sir JB is not bragging. Sir JB really does have wives in the States. So I called Akwesia Senso, who has done two books on Nkrumah, to find out if he could shed light on this. The result was a fascinating four-way email conversation between me, Akwesia, uh, Amabaini and a fourth uh, scholar who's worked on Nkrumah. And in this conversation, what would happen was that I, I would be directed to an incident that had happened in Salisbury. And it appears that there was in 1943 a memorial service for Agri, uh, who was the vice principal of Achimota. During the first year's school vacation, went to England and to North America where he had been schooled, fell ill, and died and did not return. And this was the hero. He was the only African on the staff of the new Achimota College, the one all the students could relate to. And as far as Nkrumah was concerned, when the news came back, for three days he could barely eat. He was a first-year student at Achimota. So now he comes to the U.S., becomes part of an African Students Association that he helps build in North America, so US and Canada. There is now a memorial service for Agri. They go to this memorial service, and Nkrumah, with a group of his Gold Coast friends, goes to pour libations on Agri's grave and asks the African gods to help Agri's spirit go back to the Gold Coast. So it is published in the African Interpreter, which is the organ of the Students Association. And his dean at Lincoln, through whom Nkrumah got into Lincoln, reads the report and finds this unbecoming of a, of a seminarian who is a licensed Presbyterian preacher that you will go to Salisbury, North Carolina and go and pour libation. So writes a very critical letter to Nkrumah. And Nkrumah responds in a way that uh, is, is striking. And I quote his response. The burden of my life is to live in such a way that I may become a living symbol of all that is best in Christianity and in the laws, customs, and beliefs of my people. I am a Christian and will remain so, but never a blind Christian. Quotation close. Nkrumah would not have spoken like this in 1935, the year that he arrived. A uh, very impressionistic young man. So 
eight years had made an enormous difference in how he perceived these things. I have found the works of the anthropologist of Enzima, Grotanelli, instructive in getting a sense of life in rural <coughs> Enzima. Through Grotanelli's work, uh, you read uh, a book like uh, The Python Killer, for example. It's almost like spirits and ancestors are always around people. You even speak something lightly and a spirit takes it up and acts on it. So it, it is a well suffused by spirits. And, and somehow it helps shed some light on Nkrumah's upbringing. But there's also something more important going on. I think study life and work in America had transformed or shaped Nkrumah in unique ways, expanding his understanding of colonialism, race relations, Christianity, modernity, westernization, and capitalism. He had begun to pass this assemblage distinguishing modernity from westernization, Christianity from its cultural baggage. Indeed, as I'll argue later in the formative years of Nkrumah's American surgeon, there is a sense in which diaspora and Nkrumah had situated himself with the African diaspora in the United States deepens the longing or desire for home, promotes a new appreciation of one's culture, and encourages one to live in the host society with a cultural or religious difference. Nkrumah recalls his long nighttime conversation with his mother on the eve of his departure from Nzima for school in America in 1935 about identity, his history, and his culture. In the disconcerting waters of America in the depression years of the 1930s, with its material hardship, racial slights, and Nkrumah's personal loneliness, the sense of self, culture, and history impressed on him by his mother before his de departure, played an important stabilizing role. Okay, now the next section I wanted to, these are a couple of images. Uh, this is 1971, uh, African-American Arthur Hall, uh, musician, choreographer, dancer. Uh, this is later, and this is Danao Caribbean. Uh, and then uh, I put a second image of uh, a much older Caribbean, uh, just taking a couple of years. Uh, before okay now this is a, a section I'm going to kind of <coughs> skim over uh, but essentially here I look at Nkrumah's training and his degrees I look at his time uh, two years in in, in in the UK his return uh, to Ghana so this is familiar territory uh, he becomes uh, the founder of CPP uh, then you have uh, independence his conflicts with the church, and this conflict with the church essentially ends when he deports Archbishop Roosevelt, who was a British and the Anglican Archbishop uh, of Accra. And then after he allows Roosevelt to return, it was just like a few months of deportation. I think the church decided they were not going to be critical anymore. With the chiefs, I think the king of Asante was the main symbol of a, of a strong chief. And after the failure of the NLM to dislodge uh, Nkrumah and the creation of Brongahafo, so the northern part of Asante, it's half of, I think chiefs have, they have gotten the message. And chiefs also kind of settled down. So these two institutions essentially ceased to be that critical anymore. This is a section that I want to highlight, uh, just uh, two uh, sections. In March 1960, Nkrumah went on a spiritual retreat that was publicized. It was called the Seven Days in the Wilderness. And I'm sure it reminds you of something. Uh, and he went somewhere on the beach in round half a sea. Each day, the newspapers published his image and some account of how the retreat was going, even though it was supposed to be a private retreat, and he was unaccompanied. Uh, it starts on March 21st. 1960. Interestingly, March 21st, 1960 is also the day for the Sharpeville massacre in South Africa. And it becomes the context to explain why Nkrumah's ideology, why his spirituality is what was needed in Africa at this time. So there will be actually uh, sort of a daily coverage of what his retreat was like. 
but also there will be excerpts on Nkumaisi, showing how this was what uh, Africa needed at this time, how we needed to throw off the structures of Christianity and this and that. So it's a very uh, interesting uh, phase. The last day of the retreat had Nkrumah standing in white t-shirt, white short, white trousers rolled up, uh, hand to the cheek, pensive mood. Uh, and then at the bottom, Kwame Nkrumah in his hour of transfiguration. <laughs> and, and I tried to get us uh, to see it. When I bring in the head, I don't get the caption. When I bring in the caption, I don't get the head. So I figured that you take my word that this is Nkrumah <laughs> But I wanted you to get the caption. Kwame Nkrumah in the hour of transfiguration. Now you can see why the Christian church will find a lot of this very difficult. Okay, so let me take out all of the wilderness and then let's go to something else. I want to now, I have my 10 minutes, so I should go to the conclusion. Okay, well, you missed all the part about Akonedi and Kankinyame, but let me just briefly tell you something and then I'll go to... So what happens is that Nkrumah decides he wants to form uh, the Ghana Psychic and Traditional Healers Association and picks Akunedi to be, or Dano Paribia, to be the one to found it. But the problem is that he cannot travel. She cannot even come to a club. So sends messages and say, you actually have to come yourself. Uh, and you have to come uh, early in the morning because Akunedi only comes out uh, between 2 and 3 in the morning. You have to bring sheep, you have to bring drinks, you have to bring money. I mean, you're coming like, not as a president or whatever, you come like an ordinary person. So, comes between 2 3 a.m., brings all these things, petitions, and then the deity and the elders agree that she can come to a choir and go to meetings and do things. What I find striking is that the first time she left the shrine, they slaughtered sheep and used the blood to extend all the way from the shrine to the car that she sat in, so that her feet did not touch the ground. She walked on blood all the way to the sat in. And I, I look at the significance of this, because when Nkrumah was released from prison, one of the first things that they did was to sort the sheep and wash his feet in blood. And I'm sure he was thinking about all these and the implications and the connections. Uh, I look at the CPP's connections with Akhenedi, so it, it got to a point, in fact, the Ghana Traditional and Psychic Healers Association was launched in Latte. It was launched where Akhenedi was, with all the CPP people showing up at the front. So I, I look at these things. Now, let me go to our conclusion, and we can have our question time, because there are all these interesting excerpts that I cannot read for now. So. Conclusion on Nkrumah and spirituality. So, what happened to the Catholic who taught at the Catholic seminary? Who considered becoming a Catholic priest? The theologian from the Lincoln Seminary, who enjoyed preaching in Presbyterian churches in Pennsylvania. And it is to Lincoln that I turn to understand this enigma. That his years at Lincoln and America occupied a special place in Nkrumah's own understanding of his formative experiences is clear in his preface to his autobiography, which begins with his application to Lincoln in 1934. He reflects on his decade in America, and I quote him, those years in America and England were years of sorrow and loneliness, poverty and hard work, but I've never regretted them because the background that they provided has helped me to formulate my philosophy of life and politics, quotation close. In his masterful centenary of Lincoln University, which began actually as Ashmont Institute in 1854, Horace Mann Bond 
uh, president of Lincoln from 1945 through 1957, devotes some space to Lincoln's Africa connection and its two distinguished African alumni who went on to become heads of state, Namdi Azikiwe and Kwame Nkrumah. Azikiwe and Nkrumah became students of race relations in America. And race, diaspora, and spirituality came together in important ways in their lives. Bond writes of Azikiwe, who entered Lincoln in the fall of 1929. With his friends, I quote, he visited the Negro churches and homes of the great nearby cities, identified himself perhaps from necessity with their fate, their sometimes grinding bitter life, their struggle, quotation closed. Over his years at Lincoln, Azikiwe, a brilliant student, became more outspoken about race, kept on as an instructor in history and political science after graduating, while pursuing theological studies, a track that Nkrumah would also follow. Azikwe argued strongly for the introduction of a course in, in those days, Negro history at Lincoln. Bond notes that some of the faculty and students found Azikwe's racialism unpleasant. As he criticized the conventional ambitions of his fellow students and the middle class assumptions of Lincoln University. So something had changed about Azikwe. Azikwe had learned race and race talk. Nkrumah would go through similar experiences. Again, that intriguing combination of diaspora, race, and spirituality. In the African diaspora, Nkrumah learned his lessons about race as he struggled to make ends meet in menial jobs like Azikwe before him. They tasted the underside of capitalism. As a seminarian at Lincoln, Nkrumah, as part of his internship with the Presbyterian Church, had conducted one summer a social and economic survey of over 600 African-American families in Philadelphia, Germantown, and Reading. Of this assignment, he wrote, I quote him, I enjoyed the work immensely, and it was certainly an eye-opener to the racial problem in the United States, which particularly in the southern part was acute. When I compared this racial segregation with the modernity and advancement of the country, it made my heart sink. Quotation close. The following summer, he preached in various churches in Philadelphia, New York, and Washington. Bond, in his history of Lincoln, comments on how the formative years of the 1930s and the 40s must have been for these two Africans. He knows that, and I quote Bond, Nkrumah was seeing life in the raw and sharing in the humble joys, defeats, and exhortations of the American Negro, his overseas cousin. These insights were his higher studies in the arts and the sciences of democracy. Quotation close. In its overlay of racial oppression and capitalist exploitation, America in the times of Azikiwe and Nkrumah was not an easy place. I quote Bond again. Yet America for an African, was preeminently the place for a proper education in the arts and sciences of human freedom. It was sometimes raw with the crudities of a new nation. To a poor black man seeking an employment, seeking an education without funds, it could show its cruelest fangs of unemployment, poor housing, low wages, bad food, and discourtesy sometimes as brutal as the rank discrimination found almost everywhere. But it was an America where everybody worked, where there was some sense of class or social mobility, and where there was, to quote Bond again, an equalitarianism of the American culture and its education. Bond concludes that, and I quote him, an African in America learned as he had never known before, the iron fact of racial prejudice and discrimination. But he learned also how a people might struggle with courage and intelligence against a great majority. Quotation closed. In these years when Nkrumah's very sense of self was often assailed by his material circumstances in a racialized society, his mother's parting words on the eve of his departure for America must have served as a guiding light. This is what his mother told him when he wrote it down. She related in detail the history of my ancestors, of the chief Oduku Ade, the first of my forebears to settle in Nzema centuries ago, whose sister Inuya, the name given to Nkuma also, gave birth to my matrilineal line. 
She also told me of my two claims to stools or chieftaincies in the country, those of Inswim in Wasaf Yase and Adiaso in Awome. I took notes of all that she told me and always carried them with me until one day I lost them in a New York subway. Quotation close. His mother's written words served as a constant companion in difficult years, but also as a reminder of his identity, history, and culture. It was this stabilizing hand that we see in Nkrumah's response to Dean Johnson over the agri libation incident. Educated by Christian missionaries in West Africa, Azikwe and Nkrumah thought within the framework of Christianity and centered Christianity in their plans to develop Africa. In the diaspora in America, both became unsettled by what Cornell calls Christian triumphalism and arrogance toward other religions, especially in a context where race, empire, and Christianity seemed allied. As he brought together his faith in God, because he kept saying that that has not changed, his love for Christ, which he continued to affirm, and his dislike of the authoritarian structures of the church, Nkrumah became a non-denominational Christian. As he viewed the inequities of capitalism in America, though an admirer of its industrialization, he became a convert to development within the framework of an African socialism. With his conviction that political independence had to make a difference in the material lives of Africans, and that Christianity could not take a refuge in its otherworldliness, he became a liberation theologian well before the advent of that concept. And as he came to accept that apprehending spiritual reality was not the preserve of Christianity, he became a religious pluralist in the present-day understanding of that term, making room in his life for the coexistence of different religious experiences. This was not a throwback to superstition or tradition. There was something distinctly modern about Nkrumah's spirituality. Thank you.